In these troubling times with the coronavirus all around us and stock markets going up and down like yo-yos, I offer you some hopeful diversion this week. Thanks to a mutual acquaintance, I had the opportunity to talk with the filmmaker George Nolfi about his most recent work, The Banker, which stars Anthony Mackie and Samuel L. Jackson. George is a very thoughtful uh, writer and director who uh, did the uh, screenplay for Ocean's 12, as well as the Bourne Ultimatum, and more recently moved into directing with his debut, The Adjustment Bureau, which starred Matt Damon, among many other talented people. In this conversation with George, we talk about his background, uh, his education in political science and philosophy, and we also talk about how he moved into writing and the creative arts. And from there, we talk about the actual film. I don't want to give too much away about it, but this film is um, great for the Spectrum community. Um, the values that are expressed, the thought that went into it, um, the beauty of the cinematography and the um, costume design. The film is set in the middle of the 20th century. It explores issues of race and class, but also intelligence and solidarity. I don't want to give any more away. Uh, I'll meet you at the end of this interview for a brief um, conclusion. And I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at acarpenter at puc.edu. Um, if you get a chance to watch the film, um, let me know and uh, let me know what you think. Enjoy. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Uh, welcome to Adventist Voices, and it's an honor to be speaking with uh, writer, director, and uh, doctorate holder, George Nolfi. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually get my doctorate. I left as I was writing my, uh, my dissertation because um, I, I sold the script, and I'd had an earlier uh, uh, situation where I was, was studying philosophy in England, and uh, one year, one year into graduate school, and I had a uh, kind of chance to break into Hollywood. And I was like, "No, no, that's fine. I'm going to continue my academic work." And um, and then five years later, when I was uh, doing my PhD at UCLA, I uh, got another opportunity, and I was like, "If I turn this one down, there might not be a third one." So. That's great. Well. Um, I'm kind of curious how you moved from studying philosophy and, and political science into um, working with uh, writing and thinking about filmmaking. Do you mind just chatting a little bit about that before we talk about your latest uh, film? Sure. Um, I think I started to feel that some of the academic research I was doing well, um, deep thinking, uh, and, and important, um, and, and, and I in no way, uh, want to minimize the work that the academic community does. But for me, um, I felt like 
a lot of this stuff might be read by a very narrow um, swath of people. And I also felt like um, the issues that I was interested in, many of the issues that I was interested in um, could only be addressed if, if if large groups in the the population of people out there in the world um, decided that it was important. And so the ability to get people to think a little more deeply and actually change their minds or their hearts and minds to use the overused phrase, um, was, became very interesting to me. And I, and I realized that the, you know, kind of the, one of the main purposes, if not the main purpose of narrative art, um, and certainly movies is to get you to identify with somebody, often somebody who's, um, has problems that you can be familiar with, but is, is different from you. And, um, and I just felt like by working in that space, um, uh, you could sort of spread empathy, um, for other people's situations and you could, um, you could deal uh, with the same deep issues, obviously not in the same way you can in a, a scholarly publication or something, but, um, but you could get people thinking about those things. Absolutely. Um, I'm kind of curious then, was this something, this kind of attention to how you could um, evoke empathy in not only the folks that you're kind of reaching directly in your life, but also more widely into, say, our political spaces? Is that something that you kind of grew up understanding was that something that kind of came to you in graduate school how how did you come to to have this as part of your life work so i think i've been interested from a very young age in the things that i've um, dealt with in my movies um uh sort of how society is organized um fairness justice um and also just kind of how do you lead a, a life that is um, worthwhile and fulfilling and good. And, um, uh, so those things I would say when I was younger, I thought about in a, uh, uh, largely intellectual context or just using my mind. And I do think it was probably in college when several of my professors were sort of saying, well, you should consider an academic career in political science or philosophy. Um, and, and I was moving in that direction. I, I, I went to, uh, I was applying to scholarships in graduate school in philosophy in England. Um, and ultimately, uh, went on a, something called a Marshall scholarship to Oxford. Um, but it was that period at the end of my last, uh, year and a half in college that I started wondering, um, am I going to be happy, um, just tackling these things, um, in an intellectual way. Um, and it was also the period when I started watching a lot of films, uh, when I was growing up, uh, you know, we had a tiny black and white TV uh-huh. and, um, TV was far less, um, developed obviously than it is now in terms of its sophistication. So I, I, I watched very little TV and very few films when I was uh, 
all the way up through probably my junior year or maybe the summer after my sophomore and junior year is uh, when that kind of VHS tapes and so forth were became widely available. And I started watching a bunch of stuff with my younger sister. And I really had this intense feeling of like, wow, you know, that movie made me feel things and put me in the shoes of another person and managed to deal with the kind of deepest issues in life. Um, and even movies that were, you know, very Hollywood movies um, could have that kind of impact. impact. So, um, yeah, you was, know, there, was there the, one or two that really stood out for you in those early days? I mean, there were, there were, there were so many, but, um, uh, you know, part of my family's Italian and watching the Godfather and watching the family dynamics in the Godfather, oh, yeah. um, you know, made me feel like, wow, this is, this is deep thinking. Yeah. Uh, it's a story about family, but it's also a story about what do you do when different parts of your family are pulling in different directions? You know, mm-hmm. so like that's a, a sort of an obvious one. I'll give you a much less obvious one. Um, the portrayal, uh, in lethal weapon of a, totally dislocated suicidal white guy and a, you know, Mr. Dad, yeah. uh, suburban black guy, um, was, you know, totally obvious to us now. Yeah. But, um, there weren't a lot of movies that, that did that in, in 1987. You know, I was you know? just, and, I was just watching yeah. that film, uh, week, week and a half ago and just noticed like the end of the apartheid sticker on, um, uh, Glover's refrigerator. It was just really interesting mm. little details. And I kept switching back to check the, the year and thinking, I wonder what the audience was aware of back then. Yeah. I mean, filmmakers, um, and I actually, I know Richard Donner, um, the first movie I ever got, uh, made as a writer, um, uh, he, he, uh, directed. Um, so, you know, filmmakers, uh, try very hard to, um, create a level of richness that um, goes far beyond uh, what you maybe get in your first viewing. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly do that in movies. You know, there's color schemes, there's symbol systems, there's all this stuff that, you know, no reviewer ever picks up or whatever. <laughs> but hopefully 10 years from now, if you've watched it three times, like, oh, wow, okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, so those are two very different movies, um, but they're both movies that had a... Um, popular reach um where i which is important not that i uh don't think you know more narrowly focused um indie movies are are also great and have their place and i'll probably want to do one of those or a couple of those at some point but i had a particular interest in something that could um either affect people's attitudes in the way that i think maybe you know, lethal weapon did, um, uh, very subconsciously, um, or, or really get people thinking about, uh, you know, um, issues like, like I think the Godfather did, um, but yet have this reach that, um, millions of people could see it. Yeah. Um, so I want to jump in and talk about the banker here. Uh, if you don't mind, um, can you just talk about, I found the movie, uh, just absolutely enjoyable to watch and so thought provoking, not just on the kind of big ideas about race, politics, class, um, and money, but also these like little, um, kind of human moments 
where I could see the actors um, just with just a look showing anger or um, frustration uh, or joy. Um, and I'm just, I, 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 you know, congratulations for creating such a um, great piece of narrative art. What drew you to this uh, initially? Thank you very much. Um, uh, cannot thank you enough for that. Um, really, the fundamental story is what drew me. Um, uh, Joel Viertel, who's um, both the editor on the movie and the producer who sort of uh, put it all together, um, told me, uh, pitched me the story. And he pitched it to me um, with Anthony Mackie while we were making the movie, The Adjustment Bureau, which was my first movie yeah. as a director. Um, so this was 2010. Um, and I think both Anthony and I felt like, yeah, really? This happened? These guys became, you know, effectively, in today's dollars, multimillionaires. They bought the tallest building in downtown LA at a time when there, were, there was not a single um, a black property owner in, in the central business district of Los Angeles. Um, and then they bought, you know, quote unquote, white banks in Texas and started loaning money, uh, you know, surreptitiously to African Americans. Yeah. Um, and they, in order to do all this, they had to employ this, uh, white front man. Um, and beyond that, which is what makes it have a, almost like a Hollywood, fun feel to it they had to train this guy who yeah. was uh, not um, experienced in the ways of being a wealthy golf playing uh, banker yeah. you know or real estate mogul uh, and I just thought the Eliza Doolittle My Fair Lady you know Pygmalion transformation aspect of it gave it a it gave it the ability to have that wide reach that I was talking about in answering the last question. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other thing I felt, um, and it's something that I, I had definitely heard over the years, um, in the conversations with, you know, my, uh, friends and, um, relatives in the African American community, um, that there are many, stories and types of journeys the protagonists take and tones in which those stories are told that white people basically take for granted because they've seen hundreds of movies and TV shows that do this. But for an African-American to see a story about two black men who totally by using their minds, their financial acumen, um, their strategic uh, sense of self, and their determination succeeded the way these guys did, despite, you know, the intense obstacles they faced in the fifties and sixties Yeah, to show those black men winning and to show them having fun doing it and to show it in a tone in places, obviously not all of the movie is this tone, but there is a big chunk of the movie, as you know, that is the tone almost of a, of a heist movie. Yeah. Um, and, that to the African-American community is like a revelation. Like I've screened this movie a dozen times for um, majority African-American audiences. And I just hear it over and over and over again. 
we have never seen a portrayal like this. And um, the only movie that some people reference um, that has a, a similar sort of fun, broad feel to it um, is Hidden Figures. And that was African-American women. Yeah. But like, tell me the story. This is like, this is a direct quote from, um, from somebody and there are many quotes that mirror it. Tell me the story where African-American men, you know, get to win and have fun doing it. And, and the movie takes that kind of you know, Hollywood tone to it mm-hmm. as opposed to a more, um, civil rights movie, quote unquote, yeah. uh, tone. Yeah. You know, serious, dour, um, pain, black suffering, you know, this absolutely has that caper movie feel where these guys are kind of using their smarts, um, both street smarts and, um, kind of their, you know, genius level understanding of, uh, of, uh, math, um, to, uh, basically make the system, uh, bend towards being more just. Right. Can you, I mean, the, Go ahead. There's, I was just going to say, you know, obviously the movie does handle the seriousness of what happened to them and how the system tried to sort of extrude them and prevent them and ultimately criminalize them for what they did. It gets serious there, but I just really wanted the audience to be able to have fun with their success. Absolutely. Um, the The kind of relationship between... Um, Anthony Mackey's kind of title character and Samuel L. Jackson um, is so fun. I'm. Can you just kind of talk about how you crafted that from kind of in your mind, what source material in the writing and then the directing? How did you kind of play with the tensions that are there between them? Um, and for people who haven't watched it, Samuel L. Jackson is wealthy, owns nightclubs, and is probably not the, as Anthony Mackey's character who comes uh, from Texas and is poor, is trying to um, kind of t- basically move up the class ladder. Uh, he has to deal with Samuel L. Jackson's character who is um, basically um, streetwise and um, not that, uh, and kind of ha- is a little uh, over um, Anthony Mackey's Bernard Garrett's uh, um, kind of, I don't know, humorlessness. That's probably the best way to say it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very hard to, um, obviously for people who are deceased and have been deceased for a long time, it's hard to... Um, be able to have the fullest picture of them in the way that you would if the person was alive and you could have multiple meetings with them. Yeah. That said, the movie was um, based first and foremost on eight hours of audio tapes. Oh, interesting. uh, Where Bernard Garrett um, narrates his own life. And we also had um, the congressional transcripts, the the long Senate hearing. Um, Mm -hmm. We also had... uh, documents um about purchases and so on and so forth we had a court case um so there was a lot of stuff to look at but i mean eight hours of audio tapes where you hear the guy talking and you get a sense of 
um, the seriousness with which he pursued uh, this goal and to start in thirties yeah. as a, as a young child. And, and, and the movie tracks what is in the historic, historical record um, quite closely. Um, it says uh, inspired by true events. I, I don't love that uh, terminology. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is uh, based on a true story. Okay. Um, and um, the reason I do is because I, I did all the research. Yeah, and I can tell you that um, we took far fewer liberties with the story than, say, a Hidden Figures did, or even an Argo. Um, yeah, picked, you know, two movies that were somewhat celebrated. Um, the first part of the movie, up to the buying of the bank, um, is 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 almost a step by step of his own recitation of how he got to the place of buying the banker building. You know, and then, okay, you have to imagine how was that purchase? Um, and he talks in his tapes about, uh, about Matt Steiner, his white face being his primary white face yeah. with the banker building and so forth. And you fill in details. Um, but back to your original question, uh, it applies to Matt Steiner's character as well. Um, I started from the, those eight hours of narrative and being able to actually hear the tone in his voice and so forth. And then when you look at Joe, we had much less, but we did have his testimony before Congress and we did have Bernard talking about him and saying he was, you know, larger than life and knew everybody and was, you know, a a fan of the ladies and, you know, drinker and like all this stuff. Um, And then we had photos and the photos, one of them is in the movie. Um, you know, the photo of them getting the keys to the banker building. Yeah. And Bernard is like standing there stiff and staring straight ahead <laughs> and not smiling. And Joe has a big smile on his face and a cigar in his hand, <laughs> you know? And you're like, okay, uh, I, I think we're getting something right here, you know? Yeah. So that, that's how, that's how you do it. There's, there's no way that story that, that took place, you know, that long ago where none of the um, participants are alive that you're going to um, be able to, uh, you know, get it totally quote unquote accurate. Even if you talk to people who knew him well, they're all going to have different um, recollections and different things that they want to put forward and so forth. So we decided to stick to the stuff that we knew a hundred percent, you know, the guy in his own words and the stuff that was, you know, sworn testimony and things and, uh, and legal documents and things like that. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to George Nolfi. He's such a thoughtful human being. Due to some technical difficulties, the last few minutes of our conversation didn't get recorded. And it's too bad because it was in those where he reflected very broadly on his own personal values and how he pursues an intellectual project wherein he aims to use the creative arts as a mechanism for social progress. He also talked about the philosophical principle of flourishing. And I think you will get a chance to see that in The Banker and um, also in an upcoming work that he talked about, which is more personal and driven by a sense of a spiritual journey. 
Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for supporting Adventist Voices and the Spectrum Project. And um, if you get a chance to see the film, please email me at acarpenter at puc.edu. I'd love to get your feedback on the film, this interview, or any ideas that you have for upcoming topics. I wish you all the best in these times. Keep hope alive. Bye-bye. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 